Welcome to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast, the podcast where we interview Jewish philosophers and educators on topics in Jewish philosophy, theology, and Jewish thought. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and visit www.jewishphilosophypodcast.com for more information. Enjoy. Rabbi Phillips, welcome to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast. The title of this podcast is Approaching God in Jewish Philosophy. So just to begin, how does Jewish philosophy encourage us to think about God? Well, first of all, thank you very much for hosting me on your podcast. When we talk about Jewish philosophy and how it approaches various subjects, it's important to point out that what tends to be referred to as the Jewish rationalist or philosophical position, typically as opposed to the mystical position, actually consists of multiple, often contradictory approaches. So I'd like to demonstrate this by examining different viewpoints of two very different rabbinic thinkers, both commonly celebrated as representing the rational school of Jewish thought. I'll look at the opinions of Rambam, Maimonides from medieval Spain, Andalusia, and Rabbi Samson Rafael Hirsch, who lived a couple of centuries ago in Germany. We'll look at their approaches to the topic you've mentioned, approaching God in Jewish thought, and try and show their very different styles, their different backgrounds, their different ways of looking at the subject. So first of all, is God something which we are supposed to try and analyze? Consider these comments from Rabbi Samson Rafael Hirsch on the subject of anthropomorphism, the Torah's descriptions of God in human terms. Rav Hirsch writes, what is the use of torturing the youthful mind with proofs of the existence of God, with doctrines about the essence of God and his attributes, and all the rest of what is called rational religion or rational theology. In reality, the maturest mind of the philosopher knows no more about the essence of God than the simple mind of the child. I'll repeat this line, it's very important. In reality, the maturest mind of the philosopher knows no more about the essence of God than the simple mind of the child. Nor is it necessary, he continues, for the moral behavior of man in this world to know more than the Torah tells us about God. These are powerful words. Especially when we look at the writings of another great Jewish philosopher, Rambam, Maimonides, the contrast could not be starker. So we're going to look at a passage in Rambam's Hilchot Teshuvah, The Laws of Repentance. He takes a clear stand on this question, the importance of attempting to develop an understanding of God. Hilchot Teshuvah is 10 chapters long. The first half of it goes through very specific aspects of repentance and forgiveness for various forms of sin. The second half of Hilchot Teshuvah deals with broader, what I call macro topics. How should we be looking to live our lives in general? What's our general aspirations and goals that we should be working towards? So the context of the final chapter of Hilchot Teshuvah, of the laws of repentance, is Rambam discussing the correct motives for performing mitzvot, performing the commandments. I'll quote some selected passages. A person should not say, I will fulfill the mitzvot of the Torah and occupy myself in its wisdom in order to receive the blessings which are contained within it, or in order to merit the life of the world to come. Similarly, one should not say, I will separate myself from the sins which the Torah warns against, so that I'll be saved from the curses contained in the Torah. 
or so that my soul will not be cut off from life of the world to come. This is not a proper motive. Instead, Rambam teaches that one who serves God out of love occupies himself in the Torah and the mitzvot and walks in the path of wisdom for no ulterior motive, not because of fear that evil will occur, nor in order to acquire benefits. Rather, he does what is true because it's true and ultimately good will become of it. This is a very high level, which is not merited by every wise person. It's the level of our patriarch, Abraham, whom God describes as my beloved, for his service of God was only motivated by love. Now, here comes the crucial punchline. How do we get to the stage of love of God? What is considered love of God that we're supposed to be aspiring towards? One can only love God as an outgrowth of the knowledge with which one knows him. The nature of one's love depends on the nature of one's knowledge. A small amount of knowledge arouses a lesser love. A greater amount of knowledge arouses a greater love for God. Therefore, it is necessary for a person to seclude himself in order to understand and conceive wisdom and concepts which make this creator known to him, according to the potential which one possesses to understand and comprehend. Again, this is the conclusion of the laws of repentance. Here, this is Rambam telling us the ultimate goal that our life is supposed to be working towards. This knowledge and understanding and love of God represents for Rambam the highest peak that a person can ascend. Putting this together with the quote we had earlier from Rabbi Hirsch, the contrast is quite astounding. The very efforts that Rav Hirsch labels torturing of the youthful minds with proofs of the existence of God, rational religion, rational theology, these same areas of Jewish thought criticized by Rav Hirsch as pointless and unnecessary, represent for Rambam the pinnacle of religious aspiration, the highest rung on the ladder of Teshuvah, repentance. And it gets worse. For Rambam does not only restrict this requirement of knowing and loving God to great sages. Here is a line from the Guide to the Perplexed, section 1, chapter 35, about Rambam's school curriculum, how to educate your children. I'm going to paraphrase this slightly. In the same way, as it's necessary to educate the young and teach the masses that God is one and that one should not worship anything other than him, i.e. in the same way as one must teach one's children not to worship idols, so too they should be taught through the tradition, through the tradition, that God is not a body, that there is absolutely no comparison between him and any of his creations in any way, that his existence, life and wisdom is of a different form to theirs, and that the difference between him and them is not just a matter of more and less, but rather one of species of existence, so that no term can be used to describe them both. I'm not sure what grade Rambam proposed to start teaching this, but it certainly differs drastically from the primary school Jewish education that I received. For of Hirsch, such studies, even for a mature mind of a philosopher, are pointless and unnecessary. For Rambam, they're so fundamental that they must be included in a basic Jewish education, <clears throat> just like not worshipping idols. And at the upper level, represent the most sublime goal that humanity can aspire to. So these two very different approaches to the utility and advisability of trying to comprehend God are strongly reflected 
in the contrasting ways in which Rambam and Rav Hirsch relate to the phenomenon of anthropomorphism, when the Torah depicts God in human terms. On the one hand, it appears to be axiomatic that the God of the Bible cannot truly be described in physical terms, such as moving from place to place, talking, smelling, feeling, and being governed by emotions. These descriptions of the divine in human terms are explained by Rambam to reflect the limited physical deities promoted by pagans, not the unlimited metaphysical God of the Torah. Without wanting to get too caught up in this, Rambam explains that once God is understood to take on physical dimensions and features, this places him within the limiting framework of mortality and decay. Rambam understands that God must necessarily transcend the entire physical realm and therefore cannot meaningfully be spoken of in such terms. Rav Hirsch, on the other hand, argues strongly that scholars have philosophized about anthropomorphism in order to keep us far from ascribing material features to God. This gives rise, however, to the danger that the personality of God will become increasingly blurred and indistinct to our perception. Had that been the Torah's intent, it could easily have avoided such expressions. He concludes resoundingly that belief in the personality of God is more important than the speculations of those who reject the attribution of material features to God. Such defence would be unlikely to impress Rambam, though, who states with equal force in the third section of the Moranavuchim, the Guide to the Perplexed, that any attempt to worship or connect incorrectly to God, such as by attributing physical features to him, does not in true reality mention or think about God. For that thing which is in your imagination, which you mention in your words, does not correspond to any being at all. It's merely been imagined. Since, for the Rambam, connection to God is an absolute reality, achieved by means of the intellect, the quality and existence of such a connection is directly affected by the correctness of a person's intellectual perception of God. Whereas for Rav Hirsch, Judaism and the Torah is all about developing a relationship with the personality of God as he's revealed to us in the Torah. His essence is beyond our comprehension. Comprehending it is not part of our religious requirements or agenda. The ultimate purpose of Jewish life, in Rav Hirsch's view, is not any sort of intellectual comprehension of the divine truths, but rather infusing our personal and communal lives with morality, meaning, and religious enthusiasm. So we see here two very different models, two very different approaches to thinking of God within Jewish tradition. What's interesting is that they're both talking about the same God and they're both coming from the same religion. So what, what is the difference between these approaches based on if they're both coming from the sort of the same starting point? What's it based on? Right, it's a very interesting question because, as you say, they're both working within the same tradition. So how can they end up so far apart? So I think it goes to the, right back to the beginning of Guide to the Perplexed. We can see how Rambam is building up his ideas of of Jewish philosophy, how he reads the whole Torah. At the start of Guide to the Perplexed, Rambam analyzes the Torah's description of the creation of human beings. He identifies as crucial the notion that humans were created in the image of God. But what does this mean? So unsurprisingly, Rambam understands the notion of an image of God doesn't represent any sort of physical likeness, but rather the 
intellectual capacity to process more abstract, rational concepts, which allows humans, and only humans, nothing else, no animals or anything else, only humans, like God, can operate, therefore, beyond the purely physical realm in this abstract, rational thought. In later sections of the guide, he explains how various aspects of the Torah's laws, such as those promoting character training and improved societal function, can lead the Torah's adherents towards this intellectual goal. So, according to Ramam's approach, humanity's ultimate mission is an intellectual connection to God. This is based upon his understanding that the intellect is synonymous with the image of God, the soul, an element of humanity which can connect to God. In contrast to this, we have the approach of Rav Hirsch and his strong critique of Rambam in this regard. <clears throat> in 19 Letters, a book which Rav Hirsch wrote in order to address challenges posed by Reformed Judaism in his own era, Rav Hirsch is highly critical of Rambam's position. He writes there that it was Rambam's Greek philosophical background which caused him to consider the attainment of true knowledge of God as the highest ideal, and to subordinate the role of the mitzvot, the commandments, to the achieving of this end. This subordination, in the view of Rav Hirsch, puts him at odds with Jewish thought, which stresses action first and foremost, and recognition of truth only a means towards such action. For Rav Hirsch, this reverses the proper order of priorities. Again, for Rambam, the commandments were relegated to a means towards achieving intellectual connection to God. Whereas for Rav Hirsch, intellectual analysis and contemplation is only valid as a means to bringing about an enhancing performance of the commandments. Rav Hirsch taught that the correct approach requires one to build up theories and ideas of Jewish theology based upon the intricate symbolism inherent within with inherent within the details of the laws. This isn't the time and place, but in Rav Hirsch's commentary to the Torah, it's heavily laden with profound moral and spiritual truths which emerge from a careful analysis of the laws. It's bottom-up, so to speak. The greater ideas, values, theories of Judaism are built up from the, final, for the, from the finer details of its laws and its teachings. Repeated performance of a mitzvah, the command, provides more than a superficial awareness of an idea. Rather, such repetition can help to internalize a profound truth within the actor's consciousness. He rejects Rambam's use of overarching theological, philosophical theories superimposed from the outside, as he sees it, in order to provide a system and find meaning for Judaism. Whereas Rambam, he says, approaches Judaism first seeking greater theories, system, overall perspective, through which everything else is to be viewed and understood. And this bigger picture is based around the image of God, the intellect, which he understands to be the basis of the connection between God and humanity. So, so according to the Rambam's approach... Um, this metaphysical understanding of God, can we really gain um, any true comprehension of, of, of God? Uh, Rav Hirsch's God seems so much more personal and so much more, or at least his understanding of God seems so much more personal and, and relatable. But can we connect to the Rambam's God in any way? Well, it's, it's, a, it's quite an interesting uh, contrast. In a way, Rambam wants us and he requires us to seclude, as we said, and spend our life contemplating 
you know, divine concepts to try and gain some sort of awareness and intellectual rational connection to God. And on the, up until this point, I've presented the positions of Rav Hirsch and Rambam in, in clear contrast. It's interesting to note, however, that Rambam does not completely disagree with Rav Hirsch regarding the impossibility of perceiving God. The position of Rambam is, in fact, far more complex and nuanced. In the first section of the guide, he develops a complex theory that boils down to the fact that we can only describe what God is not. We cannot make any positive statements about God's essence or attributes. For example, when we say that God is strong, all we can really mean is that he is not weak. This is because the concepts of infinity and the metaphysical lie well beyond the realm of human experience and understanding, the realm upon which our language and terminology is based. To explain, when we say person X, let's use you as an example, Benjamin, if I say you are strong, you are kind, what am I actually doing? I'm taking a term which I already associate with something or many things built up from my prior experience, and I am comparing you to that. I have come across people and things in the last uh, 35 years or so <laughs> that I associate with strength and kindness. In my mind, these terms refer to specific concepts from my prior experience. And I'm saying you, Benjamin, are similar to the strength and kindness that I've seen in my prior experience. But when it comes to God, to the infinite and metaphysical realm, such comparisons are impossible, even perhaps heretical. When I say God is strong, I'm not comparing him to the guy in my class who could punch me the hardest. All we can truly intend, therefore, according to Rambam, when we say that God is strong or kind, is that he is not weak and not cruel. He is the opposite of something else. Rambam quotes an interesting Talmudic anecdote to this effect. <clears throat> A certain person was leading the prayers in the synagogue of the sage Rabbi Hanina. This chazan, this cantor, stood up and said, God, the great, mighty, fearsome, majestic, powerful, awesome, strong, fearless, sure, honoured. Thanks, Sonsino, for the translation. He, and this chazan, goes on and on with all the different praises and attributes of God. He thinks he's doing really well. Rihanina, he's not impressed. He criticises the chazan, not as I was done for making the service too long, but he says, well, Rabchanina waits until this chazan has concluded his lengthy prayer and says to him, have you completed all the praises of your master? For what purpose is all of this? Even the three that we say, Gadol, Gibor, Vanara, that God is great, strong and awesome. We can only mention these attributes, these praises, because Moshe included them in the Torah and the men of the great assembly came and included them within the liturgy. And you say all of these and still continue? The matter is comparable to a king who had a million golden diners and a person praised him for possessing silver ones. Would it not be an insult to him? So creating our own versions of praise may end up, since we cannot really achieve and we cannot really accurately portray God's attributes, it ends up sometimes being an insult. So returning to our question, to what extent did Rambam believe that a person can develop a genuine understanding and comprehension of God, a task which Rambam emphasizes as being so important, as we saw earlier? The answer seems to be not through positive, descriptive statements of God, 
but rather through negative expressions of what he is not. This sounds a little bit peculiar. Let's attempt an experiment, a demonstration using negative statements with the example of a boat. Rambam demonstrates, using this example, how such negative definitions work. If we attempt to describe a boat to someone who has never seen a boat, is not aware of the existence of such a concept. So let's say you tell such a person, the item which goes by the term boat is not alive. It's not round. It's not attached to the ground. It's not made from stone. This person who was previously ignorant of the very concept of a boat can begin to develop a mental conception of what is being described. Even though he lacks an understanding of any of its positive attributes, the more negative definitions that he's able to understand and internalize, continues Rambam, the greater his understanding of the concept of a boat will be. So too with God. While Rambam will agree with Rav Hirsch that the human mind is not equipped to comprehend God's essence, he still says that the mind can be trained and directed towards a more developed conception of the divine, a conception which can be furthered by recognising and internalising God's wisdom, as it's evident in his Torah and creation. So to summarise what we've discussed so far, we've seen two very distinct approaches within Jewish tradition to the question of how we are to relate to God in the Torah, and indeed in our everyday lives. The more popular, I'd say perhaps the easier religious path, is probably going to be closer to the ideas of Rav Hirsch, that there's a personality of God, so to speak, that we talk to, we pray to, we relate to. And this personality of God is revealed to us in the Torah in order for us to develop a positive relationship with. At the very least, however, Rambam's teachings must provide a crucial reminder and safety net that the revealed personality of God does not truly represent his unfathomable essence. It prevents us from being drawn into taking this relationship and these positive attributes too far into possible heretical or certainly inaccurate conceptions. So I think it's clear that um, we need like a, a, the golden mean, using, the, using those words. We need the mean, we need the balance between the Rambams. We don't really understand God. Um, um, he is metaphysical and he is something that is difficult to relate to. On the one hand, if we just stick with that, um, with that mindset, we start to make God become very impersonal and very unrelatable. Um, and I think... Uh, I think that's a vital point. Now, just to finish off uh, with the last question, um, you mentioned before that whether according to, according to the Rav Hirsch or whether according to, uh, to the Maimonides, so many philosophical and, and theological questions certainly remained beyond our comprehension, specifically related to God's essence, but other things as well. So if, they, if many questions um, are beyond our comprehension, is it even clear that Judaism encourages philosophical or theological inquiry? Is it even legitimate in uh, Jewish thought and in Torah to do this? So this is a subject which is really very important and basic, yet fiercely different views towards it can be found within the Jewish tradition. The contrasting approaches to the, of the various schools of Jewish thought to the importance and, say, legitimacy of seeking out rational responses to key theological and philosophical questions is neatly encapsulated in a debate between Rambam and Ravad 
regarding the nature of God's knowledge. This is found in back in Hilchot Teshuvah, the laws of repentance in the fifth chapter. So grappling with the age-old conundrum of how to reconcile God's absolute and unchanging knowledge on the one hand with human free will on the other, Rambam embarks upon a lengthy investigation which probes the nature and extent of God's knowledge and the ability of the human mind to comprehend it. Rambam finally concludes that we must acknowledge that our minds are not equipped to fathom the nature of God's knowledge. His thoughts are not like our thoughts. Commenting on Rambam's analysis, Ravid rejects the entire methodology employed by Rambam in his attempt to address this challenge. Ravid states that since we cannot reach a decisive conclusion, it would have been preferable to leave it as a matter of simple faith, rather than to focus people's minds on such troubling questions. Rambam, by contrast, finds value in pushing the limits of human philosophical understanding to comprehend to the greatest possible extent, defining and explaining exactly what can and cannot be understood by the human mind. Theological concepts which lie beyond the grasp of the human intellect, Rambam still seeks to describe to the greatest possible extent and to explain why they cannot be understood. Rambam's persistence in seeking to probe and understand the inexplicable is consistent with his position, which we mentioned earlier, that the highest goal of humanity is to develop and heighten the rational faculty term Tselem the image of God of which man was created. This is done by attaining the greatest possible comprehension of divine matters. For Ravad, by contrast, the key appears to be a meaningful relationship with God on the basis of obeying the Torah's commandments and teachings. So, do we examine and probe difficult philosophical and theological questions, or do we try to avoid such challenges where no simple answer can be found? We've seen that Two legitimate schools of thought are well established within Jewish tradition. We have Rambam and Ravad. It can be argued, however, in the modern era of widespread and usually uncensored online discussion of sensitive topics within Judaism, the option of secluding oneself from troubling questions and viewpoints becomes increasingly difficult to maintain. In this atmosphere of open debate, Refusal to engage with such issues may be interpreted by the perplexed of today's online generation as a sign of weakness, or worse, as a concession that one is unable to respond adequately to the challenges being being posed to Jewish tradition. So I think it can be argued that in today's generation, the path endorsed by Rambam of engaging positively and intellectually with the knowledge and challenges posed by the outside world, is the only viable option open to us. While the legitimacy of Jewish philosophy may once have been a highly disputed and fought over topic, I can quote now from a leading American Orthodox rabbi from the previous generation, Rabbi Shimon Schwab, who wrote in the 1960s, well before the internet era, I'm going to paraphrase again, the temptations of heresy are no longer hidden inside the colleges. Rather, the libraries, the bookstores, newspapers, magazines are filled with challenges to the Torah specifically and religion in general. This is in the 1960s. To ignore this state of affairs, he continues, does not minimize the danger. On the other hand, a religious education which actively engages with such challenges may forge the intellectual armor to cope with and respond to these difficult questions of religious philosophy. 
in conclusion, what can we take away in terms of the legitimacy and advisability of probing difficult areas and challenges to Jewish thought? So I think it's extremely important to approach the matter with maturity. Once again, combining the two approaches a little bit, we, we, you know, we have different voices of the tradition and in, and our job is sometimes to be able to meld them together and, and, uh, combine them to, to find a practical solution to the challenges meeting us today. So I've often heard that one should wait until the age of 40 before studying Kabbalah. The idea definitely holds that there are certain disciplines which require a high degree of perspective. We learn from the teaching of the Tanaic sage, Rabbi Tarfan, you are never able to complete the task. You can never finish studying the Torah, understanding its concepts, but nor are you free to desist from it. We should be able to accept that pursuing a greater understanding of God and how he functions in the universe should involve our lifelong efforts. Before embarking upon difficult questions of Jewish theology and religious philosophy, one must be strong enough to know that easy answers may not always be readily available, but sometimes the search and pursuit itself is what can bring one is what can bring one closer to God. To paraphrase Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik in his Halachic Man, the tortuous searching of spiritual crises, the exhausting tricks of the soul, purify and sanctify us, cleanse our thoughts, purge them of the husks of superficiality. Out of these torments, there emerges a new understanding of the world, a powerful spiritual enthusiasm. We arise from these agonies, purged and refined, possessed of a new heart and spirit. I'll conclude with a reference to Jacob's ladder. Jacob falls asleep on his journey from Beersheba and experiences a prophetic vision, a dream, in which angels are moving up and down the ladder. This vision is understood by various commentators to be offering fundamental lessons as to how we should approach God, who is depicted in the dream as standing on top of the ladder. The ladder can be seen as representing a person's lifetime's work to move slowly up, rung by rung, painstakingly developing and refining how we conceptualize God and difficult areas of Jewish thought. Like Jacob's ladder, one's philosophical investigations within Judaism must be on firm ground. It must be understood from the outset the limitations that one is working within. And ideally, one must have developed a strong religious background, relationship with God before embarking upon such a pursuit. So if we place our religious philosophical ladder on firm foundations, Mutzav Aratzah, as the verse says, it's firmly uh, resting on the ground. And we make sure that we are ascending slowly, one rung at a time, then the top of the ladder uh, reaches up towards the heavens, ascends towards God, who is found at the top of the ladder. The sky's the limit. We ascend towards God, more meaningful comprehension, comprehension of, and a stronger, more meaningful, and more sturdy relationship with him. Thank you, Rabbi Phillips. That was very, very interesting. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and visit us on Twitter for updates on every episode. Thank you.